Welcome to Action Stations, a climate emergency podcast where we try to figure out how to mourn global ecological catastrophe and how to take meaningful action. Have you ever been drawn into a compelling podcast and thought afterwards, I wish I had someone to talk this through with? Or have you got to the end of a podcast and thought, I need to go back over this and take some notes? Well, both of these things happened to me last year. My friend, David Benjamin Blower, put together an epic one-hour, 45-minute podcast called Everybody Now. It's a sober call to action. And afterwards, I felt like this is way too important just to listen to once what should I do? So this podcast is a response. It's got two distinct sections. First, we'll listen together to an excerpt from Everybody Now. Then secondly, we'll reflect on its themes, as well as asking ourselves, what should we be doing in response? It is called Action Stations after all. So here's our second excerpt from Everybody Now, which I've titled Extinction Rebellion and the Magnitude of the crisis. Afterwards, myself and Matt Day will respond in conversation. So, let's listen in. My name is Rachel and I work for Hope for the Future. See, I had some vegetarian friends at church at university and I was very confused as to why on earth they were vegetarian and why they kept saying that that was part of their faith. I really didn't understand. Um, and so it's sort of through my friendship through their, them that I kind of asked questions and was kind of wondering what was happening with that. And then um, a group of students um, that I knew were also involved in the divestment movement also at um, university. I was like, oh, interesting. I will start getting a little bit involved in that. Um, I studied philosophy and part of my political philosophy paper was a little section on climate change, which I found so utterly distressing <laughs> and I mean that in a sense of like the philosophical arguments for why it doesn't matter that climate change gets worse because the identity of future persons isn't fixed and I was alarmed that you could just think that that was a reason not to act um, and sort of I guess once you start having something on your radar you start noticing it in the other parts of your life and so I started on a very slippery slippery slope um, into the environmental movement which became more and more entrenched. And after I graduated and moved to London, that was just at the time that XR was starting. And so I was at that point compelled enough that I became involved in that. And then through that, lots of other activism movements. And now I work in the sector. Yeah, so I started with sort of the more personal things and that was at university. So I um, was vegan for Lent in my second year of university. And... Um, most, mostly it was just like, well, I want to be able to say that I've tried it. And then at the end, during Holy Week, I was like, I will reflect on this. And then that was when I started making the links between faith and the environmental movement. And I was very convicted by it. And so that was the beginning. And then the following year, I kind of made that decision that I wouldn't fly on a plane ever again, um, which was a big choice, but one that I felt I needed to make and sat right with me. Um, and that still kind of held through. Deciding not to fly, for example, was a huge thing for me because it effectively meant shutting down quite a lot of the world. So previously, if someone was talking about Australia or um, Indonesia or their trips to those places, there was a sense that that could be me at some point, but um, now there very much isn't. But interestingly, I was like, actually, the vast majority of people on the planet don't ever get to make that choice. And I had the privilege to be able to make that choice. 
I think there's something really um, interesting about kind of a biblical parallel between um, you find your life when you lose it and actually when you um, make choices that are costly, you also gain in a richness of something else that I don't really know how to put into words. But that has definitely been true in my own life and the things that I've decided in this area is that I've it now no longer feels like a sacrifice at all. It just feels like I found new sources of life in being able to make those decisions. We're in the sixth mass extinction event. That's clear from the science. It's named in the science. And scientists use words like biological annihilation on their papers. You know, it's it's there have been five other extinction events. People know about the dinosaurs. And we're looking at, I think, around a million species potentially going extinct. And if they don't get extinct, they're going to be near obliterated, you know. A one in five mammals in this country may be gone within a decade in the UK. UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world and that's one of the things that breaks my heart and also lifts my heart. You know, I was on an organic farm recently, a small one, and there were swarms of insects like they used to be in my childhood. And when I go to places where there are packs of sparrows, it all seems to be the sparrows that get me. I always think they're like little working class birds, aren't they? Like in packs and a bit ordinary looking and gorgeous so the yeah it's important that we are real and I think what we stumbled across Roger's original paper that he put together was called tell the truth and ask people to act accordingly and it was like let's stop doing this thing that the green movement's doing which is pussyfooting around reality let's say it as it is Uh, let's tell the science as it is and including the precautionary principle So I don't know if you know, but the 2050 target the government seems to have adopted, which is a nightmare, has only a 50% chance of succeeding. So they've given themselves a target, and we know they miss targets, and with only a 50% chance of succeeding, of keeping the temperatures in in any kind of safe domain. This is not... I mean, if you don't get the waiting list right on the NHS, people will suffer and some people will die, and that's appalling. And what we're talking about here is the potential extinction of, of, of the human race and a mass extinction of plant and animal species. You have to use strong words when you're, when you're dealing with things like that. And the other word, rebellion, you know, it's a very British thing in some ways, rebellion. It's, it's not something we do easily, but we do have a history of rising up. And as we say, we're not in protest, we're in a space where the social contract is broken. You know, it's whether wherever you are on the political spectrum, you might be more centrist or a bit more on the right. There are political commentators like Hobbes or Locke who talk about the right to rebel and the actually the duty to rebel. So the declaration of rebellion, if people read that online, I think it's a beautiful piece of prose. It was written by Simon Bramwell, who's one of the Uh, first people who are part of Extinction Rebellion and Rising Up and um, it has that depth of Britishness in it I think of the idea of duty and things being sacred 
and how we love this land. You know, the the idea that you love your land and you love your country seems to have been again adopted by the right. Whereas I think, you know, I love, I absolutely fucking love this country. It's gorgeous, and I love the people. I love our humour. I love how we play with irony. I I love that cringing feeling of embarrassment we have around each other. That's just ridiculous, and none of us seem to be able to get over. You know, I mean, we're 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 wonderful, and we. F- the world over. It's down to us to really undo what we've done and to melt our hearts. So I was talking about tell the truth and ask people to act accordingly and the green movement needing to change how it does things and we stumbled across this. Well, it was Roger's idea and it was a good idea, but it had a piece missing. When you look at Jane Morton's work, who's a psychologist, she talks about emergency mode messaging and how the green movement needs to move into that. So it was very much backing up our, this idea uh, that you, you tell people the truth and in an emergency, a new bit of people emerge. You know, an opportunity is there within an emergency. It's not all bad. And people are willing to act according to their values, which is to, to, to everything else gets set aside in an emergency, doesn't it? And you do what's necessary. And the other piece that needs to be in there is the idea of a vision that it's possible to do. It's possibly going to work. So if your house is on fire, you are going to break in because it's possible you're going to save your children in, in the bedroom or whatever. You're not going to worry about, you're not going to sit there and calculate the percentage likelihood. Are you just going to go and do it because that's the right thing to do? and uh, maybe you'll succeed and and of course you're going to try and I think for me there is a need now to hold this vision for each other that we have woken up to what we've done because it's a mess and how you know as Greta said it how dare we but also we were broken and traumatised that's why we did it we didn't realise now we're waking up to it and falling back in love with each other in life. And it's time to clean up after ourselves. And I think that's such an honourable way to spend our lives. I've been trying to start mass civil disobedience for a while and through praying, I met Roger Hallam and we started organising together and pulling meetings together and groups and other people joined us and a momentum developed and we tried out various tactics and so it was this group called Rising Up that we named it in the end and we would gather every few months at people's houses so you're sitting in my sitting room and this is where we made the decision to do Extinction Rebellion and then we gathered in a cafe in Bristol a few weeks later to start planning it so we'd have like um, I was just thinking about this room just behind there Ian Bray who's a Quaker that's where he would sleep somebody down the corridor there we thought like 20 to 30 people crashed out in this little three bed house um, and it, it feels incredible like I actually often don't believe it's actually happening that we're now in 63 countries there's we have a, a reach on social media of a million people and uh, it's growing all the time. There's there's over 200 groups in the UK and it, it's it's heading so far so good, you know, in the right direction in terms of numbers. It needs to have about 2 million people in the UK that are actively supporting a rebellion. I'd like to introduce uh, my guest today. It's Matt Day. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Matt? Yes. Hello, I am Matt Day. I am 16. My church is Selyoke Methodist Church in Selyoke, Birmingham. I'm quite interested in the climate 
change and how we can do more to help and how we can mitigate and prevent the most serious consequences. And I'm very interested to see how that links with church and Christianity and my faith. Amazing. Can you just tell us how did you first find out about climate change or get that awareness of it? I've, I've been trying to figure this out for a while. I've been trying to pinpoint the exact like, like time when I realized, oh, this is a thing. Because I think for at least for our, like my generation, we were kind of taught it's a thing that's happening. In especially in like geography and stuff like that, you are told that the earth is heating up. I think you will probably learn, I don't know, when I was like 10, maybe, you learn about how oil and other fossil fuels makes this sort of greenhouse effect and how it warms the earth up and saying how if this gets too out of hand it could negatively affect us in a very bad way in the next yeah. 10 20 30 years yeah you, you use the term if then you know if this happens then there will be dire consequences it seems like that there's been a slight change in the in the conversation which is much more severe almost not even if it's something's going to happen it's it's definitely going to happen do you do you find yourself kind of at this point uh like worried or a sense of yes. like determined or I, both? Uh, a bit of both I, I i i was some of the i was the people who had had a bit more hope in uh cop 26 with people like in power realizing this is one of the last times everyone is together. Everyone is here. Let's make a big change. I was hoping that for, for, for our sakes, for my generation at least, not for them, their generation, because by the time the effects of climate change are happening, some of it is happening right now in the places where, it, where they have had the least to do with it. But when it happens to all of us, they won't be there. They'll be in their 60s and 70s. They will be in the age where they won't really be bothered that much. I don't know if that makes them, that has an effect on them. That think that th they think, oh, it's not our problem. You can mm. deal with it. But there is more of a when, because we're not going to avoid all these drastic changes. Yeah. Well, you actually bring up something really interesting there, which is this notion of uh, people getting to an age where uh, you know, they've, they've only got like 10 years left uh, of their life, maybe less. And and so the cynical person, the cynical 16 year old uh, <laughs> would say, oh, well, they don't care. But I am it, quite it, cynical it, in my mind like that. But it, I, don't, it, it, I don't trust the older generation to help us. Yeah, you don't <laughs> No, that this is this is really interesting. Why do you why do you feel that way? Because we've had this for. We've had this as a thing that they've been telling us for that the generation before the generation, which is choosing these decisions in the eighties, even there was this thing of this is going to happen, do something about it. But they weren't that bothered because firstly it was in the like 1980s and we're like, Oh, we have like 60 or 70 years to deal with it. And, and they were like, Oh, we can, we can try and do something, but let's let's see what happens first because we're not sure what's going to happen. And then now it's still like, oh, we're doing stuff. We're doing the right thing. You're not doing enough. Yeah. I've, I, there's not there's not enough. They have they've had the trust. We've given them trust. Well, we yeah. had to because there's nothing else for us to do. Yes, we have Extinction Rebellion. We have um, Greenpeace. We there are Greta Thunberg and all of that. 
but it's not doing enough. Well, let's set up a, a scenario. Imagine a situation where it is like 12 to 19 year olds making all the decisions, making all the decisions about climate. Now, you don't need to go into great detail, but what would I... be some of those things that you think those 12 to 19 year olds would make that that need to be made that no one's making right now? I think there'd be more drastic changes, to be honest. There's not the infrastructure to have a non-oil-based economy and a non-oil-based like society. But if we don't have a non-oil-based society and economy and all that, then we're, then we're screwed anyway. It's taking the, you're screwed economically for the next five to 10 years, or you're screwed environmentally and socially, say, for the next 100 years, next 150 years. And it's taking that risk, that sort of taking that mindset of, we know times are going to be hard, but they'll get better as we understand how to do this. Uh, you're talking about the long view. That is it. It is like you think that teenagers, if they were in power, would take the long view. Educated teenagers, I say. Not all teenagers. Um, there, there, is, there is more than one bracket of teenagers here. <laughs> so... Do you feel the pressure yourself to make some choices that are costly? In, in this episode, let, let's just say, remind ourselves, in, in this episode, we heard uh, Rachel Mander talking about the idea of, of no longer flying. And that's kind of a thing, mm. that she, a decision she's made for herself. She's not, I don't think she's necessarily putting it on anyone else, but she's no. saying that's a decision that she wanted to make. Do you feel that same pressure to make some costly decisions? I try to do what I can to even those sm the small things, I hope for the future to make the decision of, no, I won't go on aeroplanes or no, I won't say use single use plastics. I'll try to buy more fresh food and only buy what I need for say that three or four days rather than buying in bulk with lots of plastic and lots of things that aren't great for this planet. Yeah. Is there a climate care project that you found particularly encouraging? I went to 3Generate, which is the, the uh, Methodist Youth Conference. It's the annual one, which is it's very good. If you're Methodist youth, please do go to it. You'll enjoy it. Because of the fact that some like corporate corporates, like especially banks, are investing in fossil fuels and investing in these things which are going to make them rich quick, but then... Are, isn't very good for the rest of us. I heard there was these people in university age who were saying, okay, let's see if we can convince 300 people to switch to a more environmentally friendly bank. Mm. And there was also them saying, switch and use more environmentally friendly technology products. And they managed to get about a thousand people to switch banks this one person started it, got a bunch of friends together and kind of just did it. And it, it worked. It was very interesting to see how one person could change 2,000, like 1,000 people. Yeah. And it was like, could I do that? Mm. Oh, that's, that's profound. The thing that I really like about what you just said there was that there was really specific numbers and a goal. That's, that's great, isn't it? Because it's actually overwhelming when you don't have anything to aim for. So that, that's a great example.
what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read out some of Extinction Rebellion's Declaration of Rebellion, which was presented publicly on the 31st of October, 2018. So that was kind of the month where they went live. And this was read outside the UK Parliament. These are just a few of their points of declaration. Just wanted to get your response to these. We have a shared vision of change, creating a world that is fit for generations to come. We set our mission on what is necessary, mobilizing 3.5% of the population to achieve system change by using ideas such as momentum-driven organization. We need a regenerative culture, creating a culture that is healthy, resilient, and adaptable. And finally, I mean, there's more points than this, but another point is we openly challenge ourselves and this toxic system, leaving our comfort zones to take action for change. So when you hear some of this declaration, does that make you feel uh, like this duty to rebel? Uh, do, you, do you feel connected to uh, that, that, that declaration? Yes, it makes you feel like you're, you're the, you have a part to play where it says the to this toxic system, it is toxic. Lots of the people in power have lots of the money. And because of that, the people like the other people who are contributing more to the society in the economy and socially and stuff like that, don't get as much as a say don't, because they don't have the resources to be able to have their say. One thing that, that I, I liked was discovering that um, one of the catalysts for the creation of um, Extinction Rebellion uh, was prayer that Dr. Gail Bradbrook was praying. Uh, was, was that surprising to you? It was, it, it was slightly surprising because I would have thought that it would have been a, more of a, like, they would have just set their mind and done it. But to hear that it was from prayer, to hear that they felt it was something that God needed people to do, that needed people to join together. It's quite, ins is inspiring the right word? Sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I mean, I, I find it encouraging that there is a sense of solidarity between people that don't have a faith and people that do have a faith. Yes. I, the, the climate emergency is, it is bigger than us. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist, a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a, a Sikh, a Hindu, it doesn't matter what you believe. For the sake of the human race for, to survive, people need to think a bit of the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. When you, when you see a young person like uh, Greta Thunberg speaking, what, what, what are your thoughts? Do you feel, again, that there's some hope because she's got a platform and, and she's um, only a couple years older than yourself? Yes, I see. There is so much hope for that. If she can do it, why can't I? Why can't this person, why can't anyone my age not do that? Go up to the government, go up to people in power and say, why aren't you changing this? Look at our futures and understand that, that maybe, just maybe money isn't everything. Because <laughs> that's how it feels sometimes. Yeah, there's, there's definitely um, new ways of measuring happiness, health, fruitfulness, and that has a lot more to yes. do with our integrated life with one another mm. and the environment as opposed to is our country making lots of money 
So. Yes, it, uh, what is it? instead of GDP, it's G some people saying GDH, general domestic happiness, but it's they're trying to measure how happy a country is. Places like Iceland have like all of their energy is renewable. They don't mm. use oil, they don't use gas, and they don't use coal in their ways to um, create energy. Yes, most of that is due to their location because they have geothermals right underneath them. But it's also the way that the government have done it. They could have just taken the easy option, the cheap option of, oh, let's just shove some coal in the furnace and get some heat to make some energy. But instead, they went for a slightly more expensive, slightly more technical option. And it is paid out massively. And yeah. people around the world need to look at other ways of doing things, like looking at the ways which are working and which aren't working. The UK is not working as a sustainable country yeah i've got just one more question for you do you see one or two things that your local church could do again something that would be costly that would make a difference there is something our church is doing at the moment okay. um in selly oak we are we because selly oak took down a bush about a year and a half ago because they needed to do something. We, they, we planned to plant trees to offset that removal and give them habitat. But now we thought, let's make this bigger. Let's see if we can plant a tree and we can raise the money to plant a tree for every person in our congregation. And our congregation is about 70, 80 odd strong. So we're seeing how much, how much money can we raise doing cake sales. We're, we're writing a book of hope and then maybe once we've done 80 odd trees, let's see if we can plant more trees. Let's see if we can plant trees for a whole other congregation in the circuit. Let's see how far we can take this, how much money we can raise to make a lasting impact on our community in Birmingham. Well, I tell you what, Matt, I really appreciate you uh, telling us your thoughts, pouring out your heart a little bit and um, challenging people both your age and those you know older to say what are we what are we going to do so really appreciate you being a part of this thanks thank you very much well what about you did anything strike you if you're feeling inspired make a little action plan We've actually provided a downloadable, printable, eco action plan in the description. Doesn't matter how old or young you are, we can all do something practical. In the description, there's also a link to an Earth Day bingo chart with actions that might help you with your action plan. So, action stations, everybody. Let's reconvene soon. Bye for now.